there are three strong forces of mind that give rise to all of our pain and all of our unhappiness that we feel. These three forces of mind are greed or lust, hatred or aversion, delusion or ignorance. They're also known as the three poisons in the mind. And last night, Rodney gave a very moving talk about the pain and the suffering that can arise through the force of, of anger, of hatred that in its extreme form moves into violence. And tonight I'd like to explore uh, somewhat, just we can always just touch upon these themes, but I'd like to explore a bit of the greed or the lust force in the mind and then talk a little bit about a letting go and renunciation. At this time of the year, this first day of January, uh, for about the last 15 years, at this time, I was always either in India or on my way to India. I the last time I was there was uh, a year and a half ago, and I'm not going uh, for a while now. I think I may burn that karma out, hopefully. But um, I wanted to mention India. I was, I was uh, teaching in Bodhgaya, uh, the place where the Buddha was enlightened. Uh, had the great honor of doing that and being there all those years. I want to mention it because that truly was the place where most of my learning about letting go and renunciation took place. Even from the very t first time that I was invited to go there uh, in 1986, uh, there was a, a learning that arose very quickly because I didn't want to go because I was quite sure that I would get sick and I didn't think that I would be able to recover from the sickness, and I didn't want to go. You know, I didn't want to put myself in that situation. And so from the very first, I got to see how attached I was to my physical well-being, my physical health, that I really wouldn't have even gone to India. But through the persistence of my friend who really wanted me to go, I went. And that continued to be one of the greatest areas of my learning because, of course, I got sick. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very hard to be there without getting ill because it's, uh, the conditions there are so uh, difficult and there's so much, uh, um, it's so unclean in so many ways that it's quite, quite a natural thing that happens. But at, over the years, as I kept going, I realized that I actually didn't need to be quite as well as I thought I did to function. And that living in the uh, California area where there's so much uh, ideology around uh, health and fitness and how we have to look and how we have to be, that I realized how much I was actually caught up in all of that and that I could operate at a much lower level of, of health and well-being than I thought. 
And so over the years, there was just more and more letting go of that whole attachment to my uh, body and my physical well-being, which was such a great uh, lesson for me, such a great learning. My very first trip when I arrived after a long journey uh, from California to London, London to Delhi, then a train from Delhi to Gaia, and then a rickshaw from Gaia to Bodh Gaya, um, it was uh, continually a revelation to be there the very first time. And immediately, one of the greatest joys arose as I went to the Mahabodhi temple, which is now there in the place where the Buddha was enlightened and the Bodhi tree is there. And I was walking down the steps towards the temple. And I could see in the temple, underneath the temple, an opening, a door, an opening door. And inside the door was a great statue, a golden statue of the Buddha. And it was the first time I had ever seen uh, a, a statue in Asia. And as I was walking down the steps and I saw that gold Buddha, I just burst out crying. And I said, I've come home. And there was such a feeling of having arrived at the end of a long, long journey to finally reach the place where the Buddha was enlightened. And that was such a surprise, it caught me completely off guard. And that was after about a year and a half of thinking, oh no, I don't want to get sick, you know. And then and all the preparations and all the things I had to get and do to, to make sure that I had everything in place and I'd have all my comforts and I'd have everything taken care of. And then to arrive and then just to be struck by that incredible experience of seeing that golden, beautiful statue of the Buddha there at the Mahabodhi Temple. So that was really the beginning of many, many uh, uh, experiences that uh, caused me to have to look at my own attachments to uh, comfort, to security, to my own physical well-being, and on and on and on. Constant challenge. And I think that what I learned, too, is it's important at times for us to leave our comfort zone, to leave places where we, we, are, we are in the familiar, we know the familiar, and we're kind of uh, uh, going through the habits of our lives. And sometimes it's not so easy to see those edges or those places where we are holding or the places we are caught. And when we put ourselves in a very different environment, we're able to see ourselves in a way that maybe we weren't otherwise able to see. And this certainly happened uh, during my time in India. But I think that coming here to IMS and sitting a retreat such as, as this is also uh, taking yourselves out of the familiar and taking yourselves out of your comfort zone and coming into uh, quite a, a different situation than your usual way of life. And in, in a very real way, this too is an act of renunciation. I mean, there's so much that you have to let go of here, you know, from what you are used to, what you're familiar with, you know, and to really be with yourselves in a very, very simple way, 
day after day after day. And maybe for some of you, it seems like those days are getting quite long now, you know? We find when we come into a situation like this where so much is taken away, we don't have the usual comforts and, and stimulation and security, we see that it is challenging uh, on a certain level because we see how much the mind is addicted to wants stimulation, you know, wants something to be happening, you know, because our, our culture, we're so used to, particularly this 21st century American culture, I mean, the bombardment of the senses that are so constant, particularly in the, the cities uh, where a lot of people live, just constant bombardment. And we, we, even though that we may feel the unpleasantness of that, there's still a way that we are familiar with it. So when we come to a place like this, and there's very little stimulation, we feel that, uh, that loss or the, the boredom, um, uh, wanting something, something, you know, something to happen, something to do, and we, we, f we can really feel that. I just uh, finished sitting a three-week solitary retreat. I was in New Zealand, luckily, uh, last month. And I had the good fortune of going into the bush, the bush there, and uh, being in solitary for three weeks. And I realized in the first five or six days, that was the thing that struck me the, the strongest was, there wasn't any novelty. You know, I wanted some novelty. You know, it was just sitting and walking and sitting and walking and in this little cabin and, and in the bush. And it was just like I wanted something, you know, something to be happening, particularly traveling a lot and, and having a lot going on and then coming into a place where I'm just still with the sitting and the walking and I was cooking my own food as well. But it was that feeling like, it's so hard, it was so hard just to sit still, particularly in that first week of my retreat. So we can see how much we really are addicted to wanting some, some, some pleasure, really, you know, some sense pleasure or, or some kind of uh, stimulation that gives, even gives us a sense of, of being alive, you know, rather than just kind of, <laughs> we can so often feel this dullness, or, you know, just sort of, uh, maybe we're not, you know, not even fully here, fully embodied, easy to get spaced out, or, or uh, uh, sleepy, um, lose connection. So, so, we're so we're so dependent on the things of the day to, to help us with that. Our conditioning is so much to move out through our senses, through the, the sight, the sound, the taste, the touch, the smells, that are impacting on all around us. And if we don't have that, then we go to the mind, through the mind door, and then we look for uh, plans and memories and fantasies, you know, something <laughs> that's going to help us uh, feel a little more pleasure or uh, happiness in ourselves. And even when we do make contact with these sense pleasures or these uh, happy, pleasurable uh, uh, memories or thoughts, we see that they're quite temporary. 
that they don't actually last for very long or stay around for very long. And so even though we may feel a moment momentary or maybe even a little longer momentary pleasure, then it's gone. You know, maybe going for a walk in the woods and you know, seeing the, the chickadees out there and feeling all that joy that arises and uh, then coming back into the building and back into the sitting and the walking and the sitting and the walking. So these, so these, these, these pleasures can seem very, very temporary to us. So what are we, we, but yet we do go out, we keep going out and looking for something. You know, the mind is moving, the mind is restless. What, what are we actually searching for? What do we want? What are we doing here, actually? You know? I think what we really want, and I think what every human being wants, is to come to a place of rest, to come to a place of peace. I think if you, if you asked anybody who you encountered what they truly wanted, if they were able to get in touch with it at that level, they just want to rest. You know, rest this weary and exhausted mind. Come to a place of stillness for a while. We know that we want this, yet we're not really quite sure where to look for it, how to get it, what to do, because we find that we're not feeling so restful. We actually feel quite uh, restless a lot of the time. And our cultural message that we receive is that the way we get that rest, we get that peace, or we get that satisfaction, is to get the conditions in our life set up in a particular way so that then we can rest. You know, we can, uh, if once we get the house and the car and the job and the relationship, the money, the family, we get our bodies the way we want, our health the way we want, our appearance the way we want, you know, then we can rest. <laughs> it's so interesting. I mean, this is, I've been actually listening to people, and even in this last month, to see if this is true, and it's right there. That is so much of what is on people's minds. And people put so much time into getting all of these things in order so that they can rest. I was just with my mother last week, and for her, she's a, a simple homemaker, and for her, I, when, I, when she was feeling a lot of anxiety and had a lot of things to do, I said, Mom, just rest. And she said, you know, how can I rest when there are dish, dirty dishes in the sink? You know, and when my file cabinet needs to be uh, put in order? You know, how can I rest? not really understanding that there's always going to be the next thing. There's always going to be the next thing. And then once we start getting these things in order, we get a certain, some of our conditions set up in a certain way, we expect them to stay <laughs> put in order. And yet, things change. 
things shift, they fall apart, things get old, they deteriorate, uh, people die, things die. Things don't stay the way we want them to do. It's really, it's almost like we live in a house of cards, you know? So things are so fragile, but yet we're, we put so much time and energy in trying to get things to be a certain way. So we feel this inner anxiety, this inner restlessness, trying to get things right. I mean, we could say this too about, I'm sure you can uh, relate this to your own meditation here, you know, trying to get your meditation right, trying to get your mind right, you know, trying to get your experiences right in your meditation. And then you just, you know, you come in and you sit down for uh, 45 minutes and, ah, Everything's, everything opens up. It's like, finally. You know, I've been here for four days, and I've been putting all this time and effort, and finally the conditions have come together. And there's great relief, no anxiety, come into calm and, and real uh, happiness in yourself. And then before you know it, it changes. You know? It changes. We can't seem to get things right. We're looking for some lasting fulfillment, something that's going to stay put, you know? So we can rest. We can rest our weary soul. Some kind of permanent refuge, permanent uh, place or location where we can just let go and rest. But we go to the wrong place. We look to the wrong conditions. The Buddha gave us a very clear message about this agitation and what the source of this agitation is. The Buddha says the agitation comes about because we try to find a permanent refuge in things that are always changing. We try to find a permanent refuge in things that are always changing. So therefore, we feel anxious. The anxiety comes because anxiety is the, is, the, is the mind that's moving, looking, searching, trying to find that thing that is going to do it for us. So as soon as the thing we found falls apart, then the mind starts to move again. It's on the move. What's the next thing? Rather than feeling that lasting contentment, we're left with our anxiety, our restlessness, always looking for the next thing. This is the, the treadmill that we find ourselves on. We, we, it's called the wheel of samsara, the wheel of samsara, you know, birth and death, birth and death, things being born and dying, born and dying. We just find ourselves on this. This is dukkha, this is suffering, the suffering that we find. And it's this search for this fulfillment that shapes our world. It shapes our, our entire world. And it really, really fuels and empowers the monster of consumerism. People looking for that thing, that situation, that condition that's going to do it. I have this ad that I really like a lot that really... Um, exemplifies this 
way, the way that the media kind of uh, feeds on our need for, uh, for that, that lasting fulfillment. And this is an uh, ad that I found in a, a London, England magazine. And it's very interesting because now the media, as you probably noticed, is drawing on Eastern mysticism, uh, yoga, and meditation and as a way to, because that's what's, what's hot right now. And it's what people are interested in. So they're using more of those uh, symbols and those lang- that language for their ads. So this, on this page, uh, there's just an orange dot in the middle. And then there's a few words around it. And this is what the words say. Try this simple form of meditation. Focus on this dot. Stare into it for a few moments. See it as a door, an opening, a vessel into which your mind is flowing. Once inside, your heartbeat begins to slow. You feel peaceful, calm, serene. You'll feel the same opening the door of an E-class Mercedes. That's really it, isn't it? You know? That's what the cultural message is to us, you know, that you'll find it, you'll find the fulfillment, you'll find the serenity, you'll find the happiness in our product. You know? That's what they want us to believe. So we keep reaching out, we keep going out, looking for the next thing, the next thing. But look what it's doing to our world, you know? It just keeps feeding on our addictions, that tendency of mind to be confused, to be lost, to uh, not know where to look for that fulfillment. So it, so it keeps going out and gets attracted by all these different advertisements, these messages that are, that are being given to us. And we see, we see what it's doing to our world. I got in... Uh, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things that come over the in- internet and on email now. And I got these um, statistics that I'd like to share with you. And maybe some of you have also received this, but I think they're just so poignant, particularly right now as we're exploring uh, this time of going into a new year. And this basically says, if we, sh- if we could shrink the Earth's population to a village of precisely 100 people, with all the existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look something like the following. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, both North and South, 8 Africans. 52 would be female, 48 would be male, 70 would be non-white, 30 would be white. just want to give you this sense here. 70 would be non-Christian, 30 would be Christian. 89 would be heterosexual, 11 would be homosexual. One would be near death, one would be near birth. And one, only one, would have a college education. 
one would own a computer. Six people would possess 59% of the world's entire, uh, entire wealth. All six would be from the United States. 80 would live in substandard housing. 80. 70 would be unable to read. 50 would be suffering from malnutrition. And some other reflections. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the million who will not survive this week. If you never experience the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a temple, a church, or other religious meeting such as this, without harassment, arrest, torture, or death, you are more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, and spare change in a dish someplace, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. And then the last line, it says, if you can read this message, you've received another blessing in that you are more blessed than over two billion people in the world that cannot read at all. So where are we putting our attention? Where are we putting our en placing our energy when this is the state of the world? And I know that I didn't need to read these statistics to you to know that, but yet hearing the statistics bring it home, really show us how privileged we really are, and particularly privileged to be here right now. And it's this addiction, the addicted mind, the mind that keeps going out of itself, going away from <coughs> itself, that keeps the whole perpetuation of these statistics going. We really are addicted as a society. You know, it's not personal in a way, it's, it's, it's cultural. And someone did some research on addiction, addiction addictions that, that, that move us toward what feels good, that's what, that which is pleasurable, that which is comfortable. And she pointed out that there are two kinds of addictions. One is a substance addiction, substances that we deliberately take into our body and are almost always mood-altering. Um, they're alcohol, drugs, nicotine, caffeine, food addictions. There's also another kind of addiction which is called process addictions, where one becomes hooked on a process. You know, a specific series of addictions or interactions used as a way of distracting ourselves. And these are accumulating money, gambling, sex, uh, uh, work, 
uh, religion can be that, a worry, a relationship, addictions. And she found that the most common process addiction in the United States was relationship addiction, an addiction to another person or persons and their problems or to a relationship and its problems. And it was from this research that the word codependent was actually coined, um, finding out that 96% of the American population was codependent, <laughs> according, to this <laughs> according to this research. <laughs> So we, we flee to objects or situations which seem to provide a refuge for us, but we actually just feel more imprisoned by them. And if we don't, of course, we probably see this tendency in ourselves, but we can see it all around. We see, the, we see how strong it is. We see how problematic this is in the world. If we don't if we don't flee to objects or situations outside of ourselves, then we'll go to the mind. I want to read this quote from Stephen Batchelor, who's a colleague of mine from his book, Alone with Others. He says, as human beings, we're the only species that can escape to places we fabricate in our minds. Our world is extended in time so we can go back to an imagined past, personal memories, collective history. We can go forward into imagined future, plans, possibilities, fantasies. And these mind pockets seem to be safe places from an unmanageable world. So again, you're trying to find somewhere, somewhere to escape to. And then if all of that doesn't work, there's always sleep, you know? Sleep in some ways, it's like the ultimate escape. When nothing else works, just go to sleep. But again, it's temporary, because we wake up. <laughs> and when we wake up, we're right back where we started, and we have to deal with what's in front of us. When we think that happiness is born from a pleasant feeling, we call that ordinary happiness. And the word in Pali is sukha, or worldly happiness, a happiness that's governed by the conditions and the limitations of this world. And this happiness is always temporary. It's always fleeting. And there's another kind of happiness there is a happiness that arises that is beyond all the influences of this world. And in Pali, this is called Lokatara Sukha. And this is a transcendent happiness. Lokatara means released from this world. And when we touch this kind of happiness, our happiness is no longer governed by the conditions the situations, the limitations of this world. And this is the happiness of the Buddha.
this is the happiness that these teachings are pointing to. And it's the happiness that we're pointing to when we ask you to turn within, to go within. When you gently close your eyes and you turn your attention inward to see what's there, to attend to what's happening within you, there is a doorway to begin to touch this happiness which is not dependent on the conditions of this world. How can we come to know this happiness, which is truly our deepest longing? How can we come to know this happiness of the Buddha? The Buddha said, all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. And he said, it's this insight that burns suffering away. When we really understand this, then our suffering can begin to dissolve and melt away. Because when this is seen, then we stop holding on to things that are going to dissolve, that are going to vanish, that are going to die. We, can, we stop reaching out. We, we actually stop, our hand stops going out to grasp onto the things that are eventually going to give us pain if we hold on, if we get attached. Ajahn Sumedho, uh, the uh, abbot of Amavati Monastery in England, he has a very pithy way of putting it. He says, when we attach to what is death-bound, that very attachment is suffering. When we attach to what is death-bound, that very attachment is suffering. Reflect on that for a moment with your own meditation. Isn't everything that arises within your mind and your body death-bound? The thoughts, the feelings, the sights, the sounds, the taste, the touch, the smells the five senses and the thoughts that arise about them, which is the whole of our experience. They arise, they're born, they stay for some time, and they pass away. They die away. And yet without this insight, without the depth of this understanding, we, we tend to hold on. We, we, we think that if somehow we can get things right, if I can only get my mind or get my body or get my situation, my room, the weather, uh, the food, uh, the yogi next to me, I mean, whatever, if we could just get it right, right meaning the way I want it to be, <laughs> then things are going to be okay. But when we really start to understand the depth of this insight, Perhaps we can sense that something else is going on here. We can actually turn our attention to this investigation and find out how this can influence us, how can this can impact us so that we can come to a place of true happiness and satisfaction in ourselves. Not taking it on as a belief just because the Buddha said it, but to really look for yourself and see, is it true? Is it true that all things that 
all things that are subject to arise are subject to cease. How do we do this in our practice? In every moment, in every moment, there is a moment of contact through the five senses or through the mind, thought. And due to that contact, there's a feeling that arises. That's the condition that takes place every moment. Contact with one of the senses, a sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, or a thought that arises in the mind, and then a feeling around it, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, somewhere in between. We can reflect for a moment that this experience arose due to a whole number of conditions that came together at that moment. Like, for example, after lunch, when you go back to your room and you have a very full stomach, your stomach feel, may feel a little unpleasant because maybe you overate, you ate too much of that good food. You know, that's a condition that came together, an unpleasant condition because of what happened in the last hour. Or maybe you're starting to experience more calmness in your mind and your body now on the fourth day. And those conditions are coming together because of the environment and the effort and the time you've put in through the meditation, listening to the teachings, the insights that have arisen, gives rise to more calm at times. These are conditional experiences. Perhaps you're feeling a bit warmer in the building now. That's due to the fact that we've been talking to the maintenance people quite a lot <laughs> about putting the heat up so people are more comfortable, you know. So you're feeling perhaps, you know, more ease, more pleasure around the temperature. You know? These arise due to conditions. And so the next thing we do is then we notice whether there's any holding on, whether there's any grasping on to the pleasurable experiences that arise, or if there's any rejecting or pushing away of the unpleasant experiences that arise, or whether there's any withdrawing or indifference when the experiences are somewhat neutral, when they're not really grabbing our attention. So are we holding on to these passing, these changing, these conditional experiences. And then we can reflect on their impermanent natures, nature, that these conditions will cease. All conditions that are born are conditioned to cease. In a way, we don't even have to let go. You know, we talk about letting go, letting go, letting go. You don't actually have to let go when you understand the depth of this insight when you realize that all things let go on their own. All things go by themselves. And so when we realize this, really what we do is we just let be. Let it be. Relax. Relax the grip of the grasping. Relax the grip of the, of the holding. And relax, and this allows us to rest back into a place of equanimity. To rest back into a place of ease to allow the conditions to arise and to allow the conditions to cease. With insight and wisdom into impermanence, I don't let my mind be overcome by lust, 
or that wanting or by hate or by delusion. And I can reestablish myself in equanimity. It means through this insight, I'm not caught, I'm not as caught by the arising conditions in any given moment because I have the ability to be able to recognize the grasping or the holding on to the things I like, the rejection of the things I don't like, the tendency to fall asleep when there isn't much happening and not become so overcome by it. Sometimes the patterns are actually too strong. Now that would be lovely if I could just keep resting back into equanimity, right? You know, but sometimes the patterns are actually very strong. They're stronger than our, ins- than our awareness in any given moment. And we do get overcome by things that arise. We, and yet we can still see it. We can say, yeah, I'm really caught right now. And this is when we can apply the wisdom of restraint. Joseph Goldstein, a teacher uh, that we all know and love, says that wise restraint is the quality of mind that allows us to directly apply the wisdom of our reflections. So we see what's going on, and then we can say restraint, wise restraint, when we know we're falling into or following something that we shouldn't be, whether it's one of the five senses or or our mind, we just gently say no, gently but firmly say no. No, not now. Please, not now. And sometimes it really takes, with the recognition of what's going on, is saying no. And it's really very helpful for us in our meditation practice right here to just when the mind is very restless or very agitated, just say no, not now. Thank you very much. Um, I'm interested in what you have to say, but not now. And we don't do this from a place of fear. Wise restraint is not fear. It's not an imposed idea. Hello, did I just go out? An imposed idea from some outer authority, not something we have to be afraid of, thinking that if we actually do follow this thought or this uh, habit of mind that I'm a bad person, you know, and then just get racked with all kinds of guilt but rather it's the ability to be open to everything, to allow the moment of experience to unfold, but yet with wise discrimination, so that we're paying attention to where the mind is moving and how the mind is moving, when it's getting caught in uh, attachment and grasping, when it's getting caught in rejection and, and aversion, or when it's falling asleep through Uh, lack of interest or stimulation. And then we can compassionately and firmly just say, no, not now. As the mind starts to let go of the grasping, of the rejecting, it doesn't mean that the beautiful things in the world also go away. I know I thought that in the 
beginning of my practice, and I think that a lot of people do. They think that in some ways the world is going to become rather, um, you know, just cold or kind of bland, kind of empty, you know, void. That, that somehow equanimity points to that, you know, where there's just not much going on anymore. And maybe even uh, that meditation leads us to becoming more vegetable-like, you know, in some way. But the Buddha said that what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. And I like that very much, you know, as a reminder, as we continue to drop into a stiller and calm place within ourselves, when we're not reaching out towards the conditions of our, the external, the outer conditions and the in, internal conditions of our mind and our body, but to allow that which is beautiful to be there and yet not strive after it, to allow that which is not so beautiful to be there and not reject it, to incorporate more of that allowing uh, receptivity that Rodney was talking about this morning, just letting things come in and then letting them go. This beautiful quality of being that we are establishing here together. I'd like to end with this quote from Lao Tzu, from the Tao Te Ching. If you realize you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.